our panel today looking bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and maybe glad to be out of the house, some of them. Uh, Sinead O'Carroll, editor at thejournal.ie. Larry Donnelly is a law lecturer in the NUI Galway. Alice Leahy is director of services at the Alice Leahy Trust. And Rona McRae is professor of constitutional and European law at University College London. And the woman wearing an OK Boomer jumper is Stephanie Prizer, screenwriter and, and author. And now, Alice Leahy, I know you picked the piece on the front of the Irish Mail, I Stand By Your Housing Record. Just before we get to that, uh, can I ask you, how was Christmas for the kind of people that you help out at the Alice Leahy Trust? It was the same as every Christmas. We've been working in the field since the early 70s and Christmas is a very sad and lonely time. And um, I suppose this Christmas, it was very obvious that the whole emphasis is on housing and that is a huge concern. There are families looking for housing. Uh, this is an issue I'm sure you'll be discussing later on yeah. in the programme. You're but not a housing charity no. as such, though. Tell me about no. the people you help. Well, we, we find... Uh, I find the term outsider captures the lives of some of the people we meet. And may I remind the Taoiseach that they do get up early in the morning, the people I speak about, because they have to. Many of them sleep out. In recent years, uh, in, the, in our early days, the people we met came from the institutions the, run by the state. Now many of the people we meet, some months we would meet people from 26 different countries who are homeless here in our city all sleeping out. Now, with the emphasis on housing, a lot of money has come on stream. There is a great need for housing, but Alice, we are forgetting. Is there not a bed? Owen Murphy says there's a bed for every rough sleeper in Dublin. Well, there's a lot of spin out there. A lot of the people I speak about, they get a bed maybe for one night. And to get a bed now in a hostel, it's not like years ago when you just knock on a hostel door and you get a bed. There is a lot of red tape. There's a lot of questioning. There's a lot of filling in forms. So, But a lot of people do prefer to sleep out. And many of the people we met over Christmas were sleeping out. And when we went back on Friday morning, in the first hour we had 12 people in all who slept out they were glad Christmas was over um, someone gave me a present of 10 is it okay to mention a burger place gave me 10 vouchers were 10 euro each for a burger in Eddie Rockets now one of the men came in to me and he said Alice after having a wash in here a change of clothes I looked like everyone else I was able to go into Eddie Rockets and I had the best burger I ever had in my life now we were all talking about Christmas pudding and turkeys and our Taoiseach was out having a swim. We hear about all of that. But meanwhile, there are an awful lot of people who really don't fit in. And I think these are like our poets and our writers of years ago who only now when they die, we recognise what they were simply saying to us. One of the men who came in to us He's been sleeping out for years. He comes from rural Ireland. Uh, he doesn't want connection with family. Uh, he said, I am happy as I am. I'm in touch with nature. He was talking about the squirrels and the foxes. And in a way, they challenge us and we don't hear about them. And interestingly enough, coming up, people come out of the woodwork from November to December to talk about homelessness. Our two national papers never mentioned homelessness after Christmas. There was just one reference to a man who... Um, was appearing in court and he had no fixed address. So thank you, Brendan, for mentioning people today because this isn't 
the people who don't fit in, it's not just about the week of Christmas. It's all the year round. It's from January the 1st to the following January. And we're meeting more young Irish men who are feeling they're outsiders. And many of them, we talk about drugs, we talk about heroin and cocaine and all of that. Alcohol is the issue for a lot of people. And many of them drink because the pain of living for many is so is so severe. I mean, many of the people, there's been childhood trauma, uh, there's been relationship breakdown and there's addiction. And all of these issues last throughout the year and there are a lot of our people struggling and these issues are not being addressed sufficiently. And those, those, your outsiders are glad Christmas is over, Alice. And they are, and I can tell you a lot of the people working with them are too, including myself. Okay, okay. Now, so the, the Mail on Sunday has Leo Varadkar standing on our housing record. Stephanie Preisner, you looked at that piece as well. I did, yeah. Um, so, in that piece, in, in the Mail, he's saying that um, he's, I think it was put to him that he might be ashamed of the numbers of of homelessness and the houses that are being built and he said far from being ashamed he's actually very encouraged by the progress that's made uh, by the progress being made um yeah so John Lee does highlight that um he, and though and he said that he only had the brief for 3 years they've had it for a lot longer and yeah. not much has been done um the story goes on then on on page 4 um i just i mean outside the details of the article i hear a lot I don't know whether I like I'm tuned into the criticism of it but I do hear a lot of criticism and listening to Alice there you know there is an awful lot to be done I don't know that there's much new stuff to be said on it it's one of the things there's a lot of criticism of the government across the board and I often find that like I step in to defend things I don't know if it's because I'm like I get uncomfortable when the government gets criticised because I like to feel like people are doing their best I don't want to believe that people are actively not doing all that they can to affect change. But when it comes to housing, I can't defend it. And But there's nothing new to be said on it. I don't know how they're going to. I think there's nothing new to be said because there's an ideological barrier to doing what needs to be done. What do I think, you mean by ideological? Well, I think there's... There needs to be so. There's say there's three areas of housing. One of them is starting to to work again. There's more family homes coming on stream. If you if you are of an income and you can get a mortgage, more than likely you'll be able to find a, a family home to buy. Whereas if you're in the private rental market, you're you're in a, in a space that's not fixed right now. It's it's not nowhere near fixed. There's been absolutely no efforts to to do so other than rent pressure zones, which any of us who are renting anecdotally know aren't working because landlords still put up their rent willy nilly whatever. 4%, 10%, 20%, 50%. What, so what should they do? Well, one is build houses, build homes, build... build and, a and they, 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 they build 10,000 houses. That's, you were laughing at this, the start there of, you know, all the all new non-residential buildings and those undergoing ma- major renovations will be required to install at least one charging point um, for electric cars. You know, we're looking going, OK, where are all these buildings being built that aren't student accommodations or aren't hotels, you know. So I think there's there's a lot of work still to be done there. And if you start talking about numbers, Brendan, you're you're in a spin because you're talking but about numbers deliverables. Are, but numbers are the facts. Oh yeah, and, but if you and, if you and, ask and 10, if you ask the Department of Housing for it, you won't get build you won't get new build numbers from them. You'll get delivered. And deliverates are social housing coming back on stream. They're 
thing, uh, houses that were out of electricity and now have been so re-energized. So are- the minute you start talking about numbers with the Department Just of Housing, it's extremely difficult to actually get the numbers correct. You won't even I get just- Leo Fracker and Owen Murphy to agree on numbers. Like We have done this multiple times with the Journal and Fact Finds. It's They will go to deliverables, not new bills. Ronan McRae. Well, I think there is a problem with, uh, you know, it, it, the, for the government, who knows if the opposition would have done any better. But after nine years, you you owned all the problems in the country. And that's the problem facing the election for the government. Everything that people are unhappy with, um, they will lay at the feet of uh, the government. On the other hand... And the government will then lay at the feet of uh, Fianna Fáil, who came before them. That's the pattern now we've is. seen over the last and, few I mean, weeks. No, I mean, you see this in France, Emmanuel Macron... We live really well in Ireland. We we have a we were a poor country in Europe, exporting people for so long that our our self perception lags, and we don't realise we live a fantastic life in this country. We are one of the most privileged countries in the world, and when you see all the papers about what is wrong and this is terrible, it's not natural that clean water comes out of the taps, that we have free courts. That we're, we should also be a little bit more happy about the great life that we have. We are the richest, the richest great people life in the that world. a lot of us have. The, and, and, but in world terms overall, think, we have a brilliant I life. I think that's why some of us, or most of us, are so exercised about not just the people Alice was talking no, about, but it's that, the, yeah. the other 10,000. A lot of the 10,000 people are on the housing and, and homelessness. And one of the issues with that is that there's new cycles of children. So one of the things yeah. that Damien English um, and Owen Murphy will say all the time is we're getting families out of homelessness. But as that number doesn't come down then, but then goes up and it's at 10,500, lots of children have come out of homelessness in the last few years, but more children going on. That means more and more children in this country have suffered homelessness through their childhood, which is one of the things that will impact them right through adulthood. So I think that's why we're as exercised as we are. There's a... Statement from Nick Miller of Fine Gael. In the past three years, housing has been a really big challenge. Nonetheless, the construction of new homes has accelerated with more than 50,000 new bills. So that, that's not deliverables, that's new bills. But that's not social 10, housing, 000, that's new bills, private 10, and public. But, but you're talking about the need to build more in the rental sector as well. We do, I mean, the, 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 this is probably but, a far bigger issue for far point, more you people. But you ask for numbers and he gives a number that doesn't say okay, whether it's social let, housing. Let, let, me, let me finish giving you his numbers. 10,000 first-time buyers helped to buy through income tax rebates. I think everyone agrees that the first-time buyer scheme has been really successful. House prices have now stopped rising and are falling in Dublin, which we we can't argue with. So it looks as if the, the market that is coming into point. some that form of That was my first point, Brendan, that we're now those well, people are... Okay, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> want to give you, Nick Millers, we're now well into the biggest social housing programme in decades with 10,000 homes being added to the social housing stock every year, the majority of which are new bills... Uh, the number of people on the, on the housing list is falling. Nick, I, you agreed with everything I said there, Nick, because he didn't give you a figure. Okay, well, he, <laughs> well, he, he did 10,000, 10, the majority of which are, are new businesses. In, in fairness to the government, I mean, I think housing is a very, very big problem that is not going to be solved uh, easily. Uh, that having been said, uh, I do take the point that there is probably ideological opposition there with respect to the role of the market, uh, and that hasn't served the people well. Uh, on the other hand... Uh, what do you mean? 
in terms of you know what the role of the government is and what the role of the private market is in terms of new builds, uh, I think that there is some of that. Uh, on the other hand, another factor there is there's arguably a crude political calculation at play here, which is uh, that the Fine Gael voter or the average Fine Gael voter really isn't impacted upon by uh, the housing issue and the housing crisis. That, that, maybe, however, maybe not the homelessness crisis, but they're probably impacted on it, if not them, their children in terms of that's, rental that's, and finding that's and the point. a house. That's, that's the point I was going to make. The problem with that crude political calculation, uh, and again, the numbers, Fine Gael's numbers still remain relatively strong. The problems with that crude political calculation are, number one, the point you just made about people trying to get into the market. Virtually everybody is impacted by that in one shape or another. And also, with respect to the homelessness issue, uh, and I think people have a social conscience. And in a large way, uh, that's due to the work and consciousness raising uh, from people like Alice and others. And we'll go back to where we started, uh, Alice. Brendan, uh, also an, in the mail uh, where, where we mentioned uh, the Taoiseach, uh, Lurkin Sorho, somebody who has a lot to say and uh, so did Ono Brin about building on state land. I mean, we have so much state land available. Why isn't that being built on? And I think that would be a way of getting uh, housing up and running. Stephanie. It might help because one of the, lunas- mm-hmm. the lunatic issues is that very often you see I remember one story this year in South County Dublin uh, people try the government trying to buy a football pitch one of four football pitches and people protesting being like no you're not building houses here so they want housing but then when they try to build it close to them it gets there's objections Okay now this is precisely the kind of conversation that I guess uh, the government who are clearly in campaign mode were trying to keep off the narrative today. The narrative very strongly today is a pay bonanza for public servants, hiking pensions, cutting taxes. Uh, Rona McRae, you were looking well, at Well, I do that. think, yeah, that... Um, so one of the issues is relative uh, allocation of resources. What are our priorities? There are a lot of public servants and they're electorally very influential. Mm-hmm. And there will be any, none of the parties are going to come out against pay rises for public servants. But public servants in Ireland, and I can tell you coming from Britain... Uh, living Britain, public servants in Ireland are very, very well paid by international standards. I know in, in universities where I work, Irish university lecturers are paid nearly half as much again as British universities. And that includes mm. some of the top universities in the world. Now, I'm not saying you know, they work hard, they do a good job, but the idea that, that very well paid on average, by world standards, public servants would be the priority when we have issues mm. such as homelessness, that'll pay electoral dividends, but I don't know if it's the right thing to do. Okay, well, I suppose everything is relative, and and you know, you, you there are scarce resources overall. Yes. But you you know you 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 can't say nobody can get anything until we solve housing either. You know, no, but that, that, it seems to be they're saying that's a priority to raise public and public sector salaries public in Ireland sector, are, are very high as a term. Standards. But public sector as a term is is vague and imprecise, and I think these sort of broad promises aren't going to cut it. At, well, I don't know for as of as a voter speaking for myself, like I don't accept this sort of vague promise when specific promises do exist and aren't being made. Like pension, I don't have a pension. I don't, like what state pension is going to be increased for our generation? You're going to say okay boomer to me, but I'm not uh, <laughs> someday you, if you're lucky, will become an OAP and you will be glad that Willie O'D and others fought every year and every budget to get, to get a, a, a pension for you. You think it'll be gone by then? Yeah, but 
but who's who's not do your generation believe that none of this will be there for you this kind of supports that are there for people now Sinead you can back me up here because for the first time I'm not <laughs> the only person of a generation on a panel <laughs> yeah. but like, we are now no, the young people nobody's paying into it We're paying into a state pension as a freelancer no no, no you don't no. a state so, pension the old age pension is, is for everybody yeah, whether you but pay yeah, into it or not will that exist by the time that we're getting it but like will there be money for that by the time that we're like well we definitely won't be retiring because, at the yeah. same age so it'll be it will be at least 70 <laughs> and in yeah. the past older people were one of the poorest groups in Irish society now they're disproportionately wealthy but again they vote and all of the parties government and opposition will not do anything to touch the benefits of older people because they vote and that is another problem of democracy so yeah. so so uh, old people and and the public sector will always be okay well, I'm trying to make friends this morning as long as there are Larry <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree completely with Ronan I mean this is one of the issues with politics and electoral politics is that it's inevitably uh, short term and encourages short term thinking uh, whereas the long view and the sustainability of the state pension uh, would really mitigate against any increase at present but there's an election coming down yeah, the road like and that's uh, as has ever been the case in politics. Uh, freebies are going to be put on the table. We're being auto enrolled. That's democracy for you, Larry. We're we, being, we have elections. We're being auto enrolled into pension schemes in the next couple of years, and mm-hmm. that's for a reason because there is a foresight that the state pension will yeah. not be what it is. So there's a reason we are all going to have to in, auto enroll into our own. What pension. is the statistic at the moment? There are how many people paying into it for one person to draw out? I think it's four. The, and and by the time we are going to be drawing the state pension, there'll be like two people paying into it. And like for every two people drawing out of it, those, please don't quote me on those. Basically, it's not <laughs> What you're roughly exist. saying is there's going to be less people paying in and a lot a lot more people uh, taking money out of it as yeah, people start living longer. Because people like Stephanie and me aren't having enough children. Longer. So you can blame and, us anyway. And because <laughs> we're young. Do you, Sinead, do you have, uh, what's your situation renting or buying a house-wise or anything? What, what's I'm in the fate? rental market in Dublin, yeah. Okay. Um, which is, you know, and I say this all the time, we're extremely lucky that we have really sound landlords. Like we are extremely lucky they haven't put up our rent since we've been in there. But I hate that you're mm. at the whim of being close to sound people. Like some of my friends don't have sound landlords. And I have do you had ever unsound you, landlords you ever in the own past. A house? I have no idea, Brendan, if I'll ever own a house. Would you like to own a house? But there are so many things that that are are part of it. Yeah, I, I would like to own a house, but also I need to be somewhere close to work. I need to, you know, not be at the whim of public transport. I don't want to get into a car every day because I worry about the environment. You know, there's so many different things at play that you have to, to worry about before you even start looking at, well, how much do I have to get to pay a deposit? And one of the things that really gets my goat at the moment is the infantilising of people my age so we're we're in our 30s and people say oh you're young and you're trying to get on the property yeah. market people generation above us when they were in their 30s they weren't referred to as young and they were absolutely expected to have been able to buy a house that was kind mm. of a normal thing to do by the time you were 34 whereas we have all been in a generation where I got out of college in 2007 obviously recession hit we all started on wages that were completely stagnated for our whole 20s we couldn't start a pension because everything we earned we had to spend because we were getting paid so little if we had a job we were lucky and then people kind of rat on us as being God the snowflakes and you know you're not, you're not working hard enough or you're not able to do these things for there, yourself there, there and are, they completely there, forget that there for are the generation entire Xers out there listening who will say 
relax. We weren't paying into pensions when we were in our 20s or our 30s. We came out. A lot of people of my generation, not me specifically, hid away in college for a while, but people came out in the 80s and early 90s and there were no jobs there for them. And if you wanted a job, you went abroad. And you yeah, know, so we're I probably, know more people we're in abroad very similar than I know living in, in, in Ireland. So we are very similar generations to so those who came out in the 80s and those who came out in the, in the 2010s. Hasn't um, gone hugely well for them either. There's there's an interesting piece in the Sunday Independent um, with Jim Daly that, in, in a way, it's a kind of a personal uh, look at, I suppose, some of the issues we've been talking about there. No politician will ever fix our health service is the um, headline. So Jim Daly is um, retiring from politics. And as as so often happens when people are retiring from politics, they, they're liberated to tell a few home truths. Larry, you looked at that. I did, yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. There's no one uh, who speaks the truth like a retiring politician on his or her <laughs> way out. Um, and Jim is making the point, I think, if you asked him for clarity here, I think he's making the point that no one person is going to fix uh, the health service. There is no messiah who's going to come along uh, and fix all all that ails the health service. Uh, that having been said, uh, you know, I think it looks and points to one of the, the systemic failings and systemic problems that's going to persist without uh, more action. What's at the heart of it at the end of the day is like so many problems here, it's resources. At the end of the day, the resources uh, in terms of the health system uh, just aren't there. And there are always going to be stories. And for, unfortunately, unless there's radical reform and this political will to implement radical reform uh, of people waiting on trolleys and all the other horrible stories that we do here, uh, uh, one of the things I will say, however, uh, is that we don't hear enough uh, sometimes about uh, the good things in the health service and the good things and the good services that people do get. We hear the horror stories. We don't hear all the good. Uh, so I think it is a long-term project uh, ensuring better access to health care for people in this country. Yeah, and, and beyond the actual point about the health service, Jim Daly is making the point maybe that politicians get get the minister of the day gets beat up on for I think the example he uses if a woman falls over in the hospital mm. in, in Bantry that's not the minister's fault he, he also goes pretty... on to say that he he's getting out because um it's not family friendly and he's saying why do I have to make the five hour return trip um for two and a half days yeah. of sitting every week why don't they do five days of sitting every second week? And he's saying, look, there a lot of people are finding a lot that, more fulfilling careers outside that, of that's, politics. That's the other really important point about this interview is uh, people and a lot of people listening probably find it easy to kick politicians and to say that they're all the same. They're all in it for themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Politics is a, a very, very difficult job. It's probably the toughest business there is. Uh, and the amount of toll it takes on individuals and their families is just simply extraordinary, uh, especially for people who live a good distance from the capital. So I completely understand and respect his decision. Yeah, but they clearly love it too. Stephanie, you love that know. as well. Yeah, I think that politicians are the ones, like you're in moral negative equity just by having the job. Like it's an, I don't know, it's thankless. And yeah, they get paid, but I don't know if it's worth it. I think that what's interesting in this article um, is that he comes down pretty hard on journalism um, and journalists um, saying like he's never heard a journalist ask the opposition spokesperson on health, what would you do in your first 100 days which will drive significant change? And this sort of constant like journalists waiting like vultures to criticise is not helping anyone. It's not or, helping. Or, or hold to account you could call or, that. You could call it holding okay, yeah, power they are to, being account. Held to account. But they're frustrating um, people who read the papers. They're frustrating the pe- the voters and the stories of positive change are not being 
are, are not being broadcast okay, in the same way. Yeah. I, re- I read a, there was an interesting piece with Stephen Pinker uh, in the Financial Times, I think, yesterday. But he was making the point that, um, you know, there's as Ronan was saying earlier, there's a lot of good news out there. Progress keeps going on. People have good lives. But that most people don't see it because they don't drill down into the facts. What they do is they read newspapers. Now, he said newspapers tend to be about things that happen suddenly. And things that happen suddenly, news, are invariably bad things usually. So mm. there's a sense that, you know, yeah, the, the a, media is about a, bad news. There's a book called Factfulness, uh, Stephanie. Yeah. You might might enjoy it about that and about like how our perception of the world, that it's actually getting worse or more violent and et cetera, et cetera. Ronald, exactly what you were saying. And it goes through every single bit and actually most of what you would assume um, is worse is actually it's much, much better. Book, yeah. But I do think there is an easy target and politicians do this a lot. So Jim Daly obviously hasn't left the politician fully behind. They, they blame the, the messenger, they blame the media, the, the middle person um, for, for everything that's going going wrong. And this is something that's happening across pop culture. And it's a, it's a real Donald Trump effect that it's actually the media that's incorrect about, any, about things. Like if we're giving you a bad story, even if it's an individual bad story, what we're trying to do is... Is this emblematic of something bigger? And say, take this year, Printergate was one of the biggest stories that right. caught the media's attention. And one of the things about that is was it was em- em- emblematic of a lot of what goes wrong with our procurement processes in Ireland. So while it's like, oh, it's only a million or it's only two million or it's only a, it, it's not a big story or head shouldn't roll about it. What it is, is how come this take gets it wrong so many times? Why is VAT left off so many costings? You know, that's happened. what, what happened with the National Children's Hospital. So there's some things that we're telling you that's emblematic of a bigger problem in the system it's not all just what Jim is saying focusing on the one bad story when there's lots of good I think it's interesting I find it frustrating that politicians can just say how they feel when they're leaving politics I I would never criticise journalists unless we're very lucky to have the journalists we have in, in Ireland and without the journalists we wouldn't know what was going on but I do think there's a need I don't know how you do it I leave it to the younger people around the table but there is a need for some group to get together in the media and get some kind of think tank or get even some business person to finance it and that there can be more investigative journalism because I think the average person who reads the paper is very interested in knowing what's going on but they can only get a pen picture so I, I, I think yeah, Sinead is actually think, making the, great waves the, on that with yeah, the podcast Yeah, the, the journal are doing a lot of deep dive stuff aren't they but yes, it's, yes, it's hugely are, yeah. resource heavy as part it of is. the problem and that's where the media is mm. at now we, just to, to reflect the year we've had and to reflect the year that's coming we should uh, talk about the environment the Sunday Independent page one story new law to ban sale of petrol and diesel cars uh, Larry is this the right direction we're going in here is this the right way of going about it well, the, I think it's the right direction. Whether it's the right way of going about it, I, I certainly don't know. It seems to me to be a very, very ambitious time frame in terms of getting this done. And it, I, I point to the problem you mentioned before. Uh, but it, the other thing that strikes me in terms of uh, all new buys are going to have to be electric cars uh, is that the cost of electric cars is going to have to come down quite significantly because they cost a small fortune now. Uh, and to think that they're going to be all that much cheaper within 11 years' time is quite extraordinary. What is the government going to do? I think there do? is a line in that story saying that Bloomberg or, or somebody are saying that by uh, 2021 or 2022 premium cars the electric uh, and hybrid models will be cheaper than the petrol and diesel but there is an element here is there Rona McRae of that we're not making we're not managing to make it more attractive for people to do the right thing are we well I thought 
they are it does it's an ambitious target in one way but then the scale of the emergency is such that uh even, I think looking back historically, we'll look and say, is that, all, is that all you were talking about? Did you not know how serious it was? And in the same way, look, as Jim picked up on Jim Daly's thing, that um, you, can blame, you can blame journalists, but also politicians respond to incentives and the voters give politicians no incentive to tell the truth, which is that a radical change in our lifestyle is coming. And no one's going to go to the country saying, actually, you're not going to live as well as you lived in the past. Although that's probably true. And... We have to find a way, and I don't know what it is, to incentivize politicians to tell the truth. And that probably needs voters to change. Voters to be much more uh, self-critical about, God, you lied to me last time and I voted for you. How do I, how do I know that the easy answers are not, the, are not also lies this time? I think we need to be citizens rather than consumers. And these kind of stories about changing our environmental policy little bit, little bit, they're good. They're all steps in the right direction. But I think when, when kids look back who are... when people are now children look back on our 60 they'll say what were you doing were you asleep and you thought this was radical when 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 the planet was on fire and you're thinking should we throw one cup of water at the flames or would half a cup do you know that's uh, I think it's going to look really bad historically Sinead, is this that is, what you think? There's a f- uh, story um, in the corner of the front page of the Sunday Business Post as well um, about the Minister for, Minister for Agriculture, Michael Creed, saying the reduction of the cattle herd can't be ruled out. That's something I don't think you'll hear Minister Creed say as we get closer to, no. and closer to an election mm-hmm. in April. Uh, and that is something that is more radical like that, that we do. Yeah, and we, actually, if you read the, the interview inside... He basically says, no, this is a simplistic notion that if we just caught half the cattle, that that would make a difference. He's, he eventually agrees that, yes, we might do that if everything else has failed, but he says everything else is not going to fail. So he's not actually, actually he's really not actually saying, saying it. Saying no, it. No. And, and then there's going to be, like I'd say, the, there's already people screaming at me in their kitchen saying, but what about the aviation industry? Yeah. Cars are way worse. There's a huge amount of water battery when it comes to any decision around yeah. climate change. And one of the other things that's going to be But is that understandable? Very... Are we beating up on on farmers and individuals out there for the way they live their lives when China goes on merrily on its way when they're building a coal field in Australia mm-hmm. that's the size of Belgium or something and, and bringing it on stream all these electric cars are going to be powered by what? Coal? A, a, There's a great a cartoon it, isn't it? a few months ago in a paper that said who wants change and they show everyone puts up their hands to say who wants to change and no one puts up their hand and that's yeah we yeah. our emissions are w- per capita as world citizens are way above our fair share of emissions so we can say we're beating up on people we're doing this but w- we have to do an awful lot Alice, I, um, the older generations get a hard time here as well don't, don't they as if it, everything it's all our fault oh, apparently all our fault. and and yeah. uh, I mean, I when I hear, I'm, I don't drive. I never did drive. I have no intention of driving. And um, I do think there's something missing also in this debate because uh, older people are being blamed for the state of the nation in many ways. Um, I recycle, We recycled everything when we were growing up. We didn't use the language uh, that's being used now. But we all grew up like that because nobody had much money. You respected the environment. You didn't have cars. Um and you weren't flying away for weekend way. breaks willy-nilly, I'm <laughs> no, sure. I wasn't. Yeah. The nearest I got might have been Tremor. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but no, I'm, I'm saying that because I do know there's a huge problem. But I think there's another side too. I hate to see 
young people so depressed now about the future that they can't live today. And I think we need to watch that. And I know some people I know who are so... um, it, they are so bothered by it all that you can't even have the kind of conversation we're having here. So again, there's need for balance, I think. I think yeah. we also know if we don't cherish our environment, we have nothing. And even the taxi man coming out, I had, a, I had to get a taxi too far to walk, um, too dangerous on the bicycle. And uh, anyway, we had a very interesting conversation about how technology and the environment and how... Um, we need to have a more balanced discussion. We all need each other and we all need to be in the debate and it shouldn't be young or old, it should be all of us together. And it shouldn't either be party political because that's part of the problem because it's one party against another and even when you get people who are voting they say well I always vote Fianna Gael, I couldn't vote for anyone else now, Uh, I'm just mentioning Fianna Gael, but um, we have a very narrow view of things and we react in a way that's not not always constructive. Okay, why can't but, we all just come yeah. together? And Thank I, you, Alice I, Lee, <laughs> and we'll take a quick break. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back and our panel is still with us. Sinead O'Carroll, Larry Donnelly, Alice Leahy, Rona McRae and Stephanie Preisner. And as Alice Leahy just pointed out during the break, there are five people from very different uh, backgrounds and textures and walks of life all coming to understand each other a bit better, uh, Alice feels. Now, Stephanie Preisner, you were looking at on uh, page 20 in the Sunday Independent and there's a lot of it at this time of the year where we remember those we loved and lost. Yeah, so um, Sun Independent has a nice little piece on uh, some of the lovely people that we lost in 2019. Um, Gay Byrne there standing in the centre. Um, what a hero. And um, Brendan Grace. And then Danica McGuigan there, who was in my show Can't Cope, Won't Cope. Um, tragically lost Danica earlier on this year. Um, and I was also thinking of Noel Whelan because the last time I was on the show, he was here with me and I was underprepared and intimidated and he gave me some of his talking points, which I was really <laughs> grateful for. Um, so, yeah, just a nice piece there on some of the people that we've lost. Yeah, OK. And we, we remember them all very fondly. And at this time of year as well, it is difficult for people who've lost people during the year. So we remember them. Um, Sinead, uh, we, we couldn't let things go today without mentioning the FAI. Um, so they're having the, the, the second part of their AGM today. AGM, um, yeah. what, what's in the papers today that caught your eye about the... FAI matters. Well, probably a lot of people saw Shane Ross's um, Christmas tweet um, oh, where he had his uh, his turkey or his goose, actually. A goose. His goose. Not, Sorry. Not, <laughs> no mere turkey. It was a goose. It was a goose. And Man was, of the people. Yeah. And he, <laughs> he was wondering. I think it was a Stephen's Day goose, actually. Um <laughs> I think so. Yeah, it wasn't his Christmas Day turkey. Was his, and he was asking which which one of them had uh, had had got his goose. Was it the vintners? Had, had was his goose. was yeah. it um, the FAI or was it the judges? So it was. I guess at the start of this year, would you have predicted what had happened with the FAI? And I, and I think a lot of people 
within sport, within football and certainly within journalism, knew that there were problems within the FAI, knew that there was definitely governance issues within the FAI, a lot of which we had wanted to write about, tried to write about. I'm thinking of people like Emmett Malone in the Irish Times who had definitely done a huge amount of work, but because of the legal restrictions that we have and because of, like John Delaney said himself in a Sunday Times, uh, Sunday Times had documents, he had taken a case against journal media and said, it's not a strong case, but we're going to see if they'll stop writing about him, about me and the FAI. Obviously, we didn't at Journal Media, we didn't do that, but that was something from the horse's mouth. He had said it um, in a meeting of the FAI. The Sunday Times were able to get their hands on those minutes and and printed it. So things like that stopped us being able to investigate fully and tell the public fully what we had feelings about. Mark Tig eventually did it because he he didn't John Dane didn't get an injunction against him. So we now have yeah, which full that no that injunction was on, that, that he attempted to get was on the basis of privacy. I don't think that was a libel law. No, no, it was a, yeah, yeah, a privacy one. So I think because of that judge's decision, we now have more of a full side of what has been happening in the FAI. That there is fifty five million euro debts. That there are those governance issues. That it does need a full. Um, we actually still don't know what it needs. It needs mm-hmm. a full rejig. And I think that the Shane Ross tweet really got people because it looked like he wasn't taking seriously something that is incredibly serious and he is the yeah. sports minister. But you know what, as well, it's easy for everyone to say, no, the dogs in the streets knew this and it's easy to say that the law uh, protected all, all these people, but it didn't ultimately. Like, I mean, the judge made a decision that night and, and, and that was the law working very well in this case and and allowing the story to come out, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, so. and Mark Tighe's amazing investigative Absolutely. work, um, which I think everyone in football definitely praises him and, and thanks him for the work that he is, has done um, for football. But I think it the whole FAI story, being able to hide some of that in plain sight is really, again, going back to what I was saying, emblematic of what can happen um, in Ireland when the state gives important jobs over to the not-for-profit and charity sector. We've seen it all decade. Mm-hmm. We've seen many, many charity scandals um, where people are doing doing a lot of good but hiding a lot of bad at the same time. Yeah, and uh, I think in fairness, the, 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 the state can't run the FAI and in fact it would be against UEFA yeah. rules if the state were too involved No in I'm not saying thing. they so, should do yeah. it but it's, it's one of the functions that when we do outsource some some of the work if the, if we don't have the regulation and the governance rules in place then a lot of bad can mm-hmm. be done at the same time You yeah, shouldn't yeah, need yeah. heroes heroic figures to take big risks like that there should be systems auditing needs to be looked at why would the yeah. why, why is this only coming out now um, also board members should be to have a degree of independence those systems don't seem to have worked and now it's like in Casablanca where everyone is standing around like the policeman saying I'm shocked shocked that there's gambling going on in here yeah. and uh, you know, but the system hadn't worked for a good decade in, in, it seems in the FAI Yeah and, and I suppose it's an argument as well for as you're saying Sinead in charities as well um, oh, yeah, Alice professional is, management yeah, needs to be it in is place crucial doesn't it yeah. and proper governance I think it's shocking what happened but as we're on to sport Brendan can I mention a few good things. Of course you can. Good um, idea. <laughs> I want to mention uh, the girls in the, the Irish hockey team. They did mm. so well. And my our own Rachel Blackmore, that wonderful jockey. And even Leo was out for a photo. Surprise, surprise with her the other day. <laughs> I know, come and on. And then we had Shamie Callan, I have to say, nearly had a heart attack in Croke Park. I nearly had. And uh, I think Shane Lowry, yes. I think he was just so wholesome. Yeah. There was something <laughs> special about him. I could never play golf I, I never will. I couldn't even manage 
manage pitch and pot. But there was just something. I think he captured what's good about us Irish. Yeah, he, yeah. He could laugh. I at think himself, the fact that he seemed like the kind of fellow you go for a um, point with, you rented, would, and have a good, way, honest chat yeah, with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. You would. He was just loved. They were all just great. Yeah, Stephanie. Um, I just want to romp through a few various things here. A bit of texture of the year. Uh, you're looking at a piece in the mail that is about the new words that we all learned this year. Give yeah. us a few of them So, there. have you um, heard of any of these words? Um, therapet. I've, I was saying earlier on, I've heard of these non-ironically. I presume a therapet is a therapist a for your pet. No, no, no. no. It's a <laughs> therapeutic pet. So, it's an animal oh, which yeah, yeah, is yeah. trained to calm people who have anxiety or stress or ill or elderly mm. people. Um, and you might I don't think that's that crazy you know, no. a lot of kids with mm. autism and stuff like that get a lot out of their yeah, that's um, a out of their dogs so this yeah, is a, okay. I'm, I'm easing you into it okay go on. Um, <laughs> have you seen someone running with their therapist or plogging which is some uh, plogging is an activity where you pick up plastic litter while jogging so you're getting fit and also virtuous I like it. <laughs> and if you do that, you might be someone who would be described as a breatharian, who's someone who does not eat solid food and believes that they can get all their nutrients by breathing air in special breathing exercises. So they're not going to last very long. <laughs> um, and then a hype beast is another one that I've used unironically, who's like a young person who's obsessed with the new coolest thing. So that's a hype beast. I'm kind of one okay, of them. Okay, give us one bit. more. A slashy, um, who otherwise known as a millennial, someone who has a lot of forward slashes in their job title. Okay, so, so you're an author writers, slash screenwriter? Slash call, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. are you a slashy? I'm a slashy, yeah. I'm, I'm also a hype beast and I'm also a nightmare. Yeah. And I'll leave you with that. And a therapist, I'm sure, to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, okay, let's let's move on to the... It would be a shame not to have uh, Larry Donnelly here and not talk about um, the constant uh, entertainment in a way that is that is America. So, Larry, uh, how, how are you feeling about it all now at the end of uh, 2019 as a, as a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat and everything? Where uh, are you I suppose, you know, quite, quite up in the air at the moment. Uh, you know, Donald Trump, one never knows what to expect next. Uh, I do think, however, I do think as much as they might have seen it as a moral imperative, uh, I do think that the impeachment process was a political mistake. Uh, I don't think it's going to help the Democrats' cause. Uh, it's going nowhere in the Senate. Uh, we have an admittedly biased jury who is going to uh, acquit the president to almost no matter what. Uh, and I think you will have an American people, at least those who are going to make up, make up their minds. I mean, the people who hate Trump hate him. The people who love him love him. But that small group in the middle, uh, I think, may look at this process and say, why did you go through all these lengths? Why didn't you do our business? And then some of them might say, why is it that you need to impeach him? Are you afraid to beat him the old fashioned mm, way mm. Uh, at the ballot box? Uh, have, have the Democrats been obsessed since, since Trump got in? We're trying to get rid of him in some way that doesn't involve winning an election. Would they not have focused all that energy on winning an election? I I think Nancy Pelosi would have much preferred that, to be frank. But I think some on the hard left of the Democratic Party have said that, and they've said it from the very, very beginning, uh, oftentimes in very colorful language. Uh, And again, despite the polarization in American politics, at the end of the day, this thing is going to be won in the middle, in in the certain number of uh, vital electoral college states. Uh, And I think that that messaging doesn't play well. Uh, I also think... Is this helping Trump? 
I wouldn't. I don't. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's actively helping him. But what I will say is it's not hurting him, and the poll numbers show that uh, over and over again. Uh, I also think that there is an issue with the Democratic primary. I think with the with the potential nominees, uh, all of them have profound flaws uh, as political candidates. And the other, in issue, fairness, the guy they'd be going up against has fairly profound but, flaws and this as is, well. And this is this is always said. But the, the thing is, and this is the genius of Trump, whether we like him or not, he plays the game by very, very different rules than anybody else does. And what I'm afraid of in terms of the Democratic primary is some cast this as uh, the moderates versus the left. Uh, I think if you go to Pennsylvania or if you go to Wisconsin or you go to Michigan, uh, you're going to see people look at those Democratic candidates. Again, the people are going to decide this thing and they'll say, they're all completely out of tune with me, at least on cultural issues. And Donald Trump can manipulate that sentiment. He's proven uh, his capacity to do so. All well, that- is it manipulating the, the, the sentiment or is it is it just um, how you win an election, really? You know, I think to, to ascribe everything he does as being in some way malicious, like that he's manipulating sentiment, that's what politicians do. Of and, course. And, and like, is it a question, are the Democrats going to lose this election more so than Trump wins it? Do they even the, need Trump to help them along? They, they, they could. And your, your point about manipulation is an interesting one. Of course, all politicians do that. But what Trump has been able to do is to cast himself, the New York billionaire, somehow as a champion of people who are down and out when the reality is his policies have not accomplished anything for those people. That is extraordinary the, the, manipulation. No, the economy is roaring ahead, isn't it? Well, the, the unemployment numbers are fantastic. And in particular, again, a space to watch is the unemployment numbers among Latinos and African-Americans are at historic lows. And Trump's support among particularly Latinos would blow your mind away if you looked at the numbers, especially given the things he has said about building a wall and all sorts of other derogatory things. At the end of the day here, I don't think that this, you know, there is a perspective out there that says, oh, Trump's going to do this. Uh, I don't think it's that easy because everything went right for the guy last time and he just, just barely squeaked over the line. So can the Democrats still do this? Yes. But I think in large part, it's going to be down to who the nominee is and what happens between now uh, and the first Tuesday of next November. As a kind of a moderate conservative Democrat yourself, who's the candidate that you think could do it? (laughs) It's a it's a really tough question. If you put the proverbial gun to my head, uh, I'd say Biden. But I think if Biden gets the nomination, I think everybody who's desperate to beat Donald Trump is going to have their head in their hands saying, please don't make one of those gaffes that you're so prone to La- making. Larry, is there anything the Democrats could Sinead. have done or you would have liked them to see them have done over the last four years so that you didn't have this you know, kind of lacklustre like, lineup of people and that it was more obvious that they, they had a candidate almost picked by the time they got to the primaries. Like from an Irish point of view, you, you know, that makes sense going into any kind of leadership campaign. Is there anything they could have done within that system? It's very tough to know. Your, your point is well made and the question is a good one. Uh, the issue is I think the Democrats have struggled internally with how best to combat Trump. There are two schools of thought. One is we move to the left, we rally the troops, we get African-Americans, we get others, we get young people out to vote and we go that way. Or do we take that middle course and, and you know try to appeal to some of the people we lost last time around? I think there's been a huge internal struggle uh, yeah. as to which course of action. And that has almost paralyzed them in terms of taking the more robust that electorate that didn't work for Hillary and indeed it didn't work for Labour either in Britain did but it? it? Yeah. But yeah. they failed in the right. same way so Hillary was a centre centrist candidate who and Jeremy Corbyn was a hard left candidate but they both failed to get older white voters in post-industrial areas 
Okay. They both failed in the same way, even though they're very different Working candidates, which is really worrying for the left. So it seems that they're damned what they do and they're damned mm-hmm. what they don't. Is uh, it that the left has become so obsessed with identity politics and all that, that they've forgotten who they're supposed to stand for, which is the, the working people? Or yeah, I mean, the OK Boomer uh, generation, there is a degree of uh, contempt for older working class white voters that I think probably turns people off. The Democrats have a lot to say to young college educated uh, fairly often wealthy voters mm. in cities, but they don't have much to say to retire uh, to retired miners in. And just to take that point, I think it's not the left that are obsessed with identity politics. Right, it's actually right. the right that are obsessed. The, what the left do is they want equality for minority groups who identify in a different way than the mainstream do. The right are opposed to that, so it's actually the right that are. Are, are more obsessed with well, identity politics. It's a question of which direction you what, look at it what, from. But what, yeah. what they've argued, and Sinead's point is well made, but what they've arguably done is they've, at least from a perception point of view, and perception is everything in politics, the common perception, uh, at least among the key voters, especially in the United States, but also in the UK, is that the left cares more about trendy cultural issues that benefit mm-hmm. wealthy yeah. people mm-hmm. okay. than and they do the bread and butter yeah. stuff. No, listen, we only, have, well. we only have a couple of minutes left and I'm conscious that uh, Ronan McRae we didn't get to your specialist subject oh, which is Brexit if I gave you now a minute and a half or so could right. you uh, give us an idea of where you think it all goes from here okay um, so uh, Ursula von der Leyen rightly was said yesterday she's worried that Boris Johnson has uh, said that he will put a limit on the negotiations there'll be no extension of this uh, transition period so when Britain leaves the end of January they go into the transition period when they're still in the EU legally well they're out of the EU but they're still in the single market now that'll only last for a year unless it's extended the big problem Boris Johnson's facing is he has to he swore he won't ask for an extension but there isn't enough time to do a trade deal between now and December worse he has to ask for the extension before the 1st of July so he has to turn around to his party before July and say Forget everything we swore about not extending the extension period. We need to extend it. He probably won't do that. That means all that we can have by December is a very minimal trade deal or no deal at all. And a very minimal trade deal is not that different from a no deal Brexit. So we're probably at this time next year, British Britain will be facing some form of cliff edge unless Boris Johnson manages to pull off another vote, kind of fairly shameless vote fast as Mm -hmm. done in the past. Problem is he has to do it early. Legally, it's impossible after July. So we're looking probably at a very, uh, some kind of cliff edge this time next year. Okay, so uh, crisis not averted, uncertainty not gone. We'll take a break. Podcast the Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Now, this week's date papers from 1989 were released. John Bowman, broadcaster and historian, has been reading through them, focusing on Anglo-Irish relations and looking at how they reflect the relationship between Charles Hawhey and Margaret Thatcher. They'd both come into power 10 years before, in 1979, and had had a bumpy relationship in their many meetings since then. They were not to know it, but 1989 was to be Thatcher's last year as Conservative leader and, and Prime Minister. John, you're very welcome. Tell Thank me you. about 1989 in terms of Anglo-Irish relations. Well, the first point to be made, I suppose, is that it was a relatively uh, slow year and not a very eventful year because uh, there was no summit, for instance, uh, Thatcher uh, didn't want one and she generally wanted to keep it all a bit under the radar. She'd given up on Northern Ireland, about which she had not learnt an awful lot. 
despite being there for 10 years and in charge of British policy. Uh, she was kind of all over the place on Northern Ireland, really, if you look at the total big picture. Um, and her relationship with Charles Hockey was better than it had been because he had sent her a stinker of a letter uh, in the previous year, saying he was just fed up with her presumption of knowing more than he did about the issue, as if it meant more to her. He was pointing out that it meant more to his state than it even did to the British state. Um, and he was prompted to do that by Richard Ryan, who was the one of the key men uh, in gathering intelligence on British policy in our London embassy. And Richard Ryan wrote to wrote to, um, actually he wrote to the Department of Foreign Affairs, but it was absolutely intended for Charlie's eyes and uh, was written in a way t- for him to pick up on, which he mm-hmm. did. Uh, and in the previous year, he had written Thatcher this letter, w- which is very important and where he said that he was just pissed off by, and he didn't use that word, but he, mm-hmm. he did say he was he was tired of being bedr- ballyragged by her at, at, these, at their summit meetings and so on. And the next one w- was one she took more seriously, uh, and she kind of woke up to the fact that he he was there. He was really quite annoyed with, with the way she was approaching it. And he was trying to educate her on the complexity of Northern Ireland and what it meant to the Irish government uh, in Dublin. Now, of course, the point, the key point about, about Hawhey himself is that he was playing all of this out on a wicket, not not only not of his making, but it was the, it was the Hillsborough Agreement, mm-hmm. which he had described as partitionist, and as treasonable, they were his first cold verdicts. And he began rowing back by very small increments, even within seven or eight days, because he knew that if he ever came back into power, it might well be the wicket he'd be batting on. And so, so it was. And what must have really surprised him, although this is not the sort of detail one gets in the records, what must have surprised him is just how well prepared that wicket was by the Irish players and the diplomats and the people in the Taoiseach's department, all of whom were Fitzgerald appointees. OK, uh, so we have a, a clip, I believe. Um... Yeah, well, well, OK, so he meets, he, he, he met Margaret Thatcher for less than an hour. I, I actually, in the Irish Times piece, I said it, they met for two 30 minutes. When, he, when Charlie Hawhey talks to Tommy Gorman on RT News, he, he, Tommy says to him, you, you met the... You, you met for 15 or 20 minutes with the British Prime Minister. Yeah. So it was it was always put down as half an hour because it was in the margins of the European Union summits. Um, but it was probably less than an hour. And much of that talk, or at least a higher proportion than usual, was about Europe, which was one of Margaret Thatcher's preoccupations. And in the December summit, uh, the key big point about it was that the Berlin Wall had just fallen. It was all the talk at the EU summit, you can imagine, the heads of state in, in Europe, the, the buzz was around Germany. And the Dermot Nally's note of that meeting between Thatcher and Hohe is that it, Thatcher is complaining about it, but the whole issue is becoming more and more Germanic. Coal was like a bulldozer. Okay. And this is what she also was, because she was against German reunification. I think you're going much too fast much too fast. You have to take these things step by step and handle them very wisely. Uh, They say now that they want a genuine democracy in East Germany. It's one thing to say it, but you really have to apply yourself to build it. And indeed, when Charles Hawhey was then asked about German unity, he gave a rather predictable and very Irish reply. There is a clear uh, statement of principle by all concerned 
that uh, the question of German unification, reunification, is primarily a matter uh, for it to be settled by the German people in accordance with principles of self-determination. What else it's a would very you say? Different views. Well, yeah. yeah, it's a sort of an Irish uh, Orthodox view, and yeah. he would expect it and to apply it in the Irish case, in the Irish case as well. When they did get talking about uh, Northern Ireland at these summits, the Birmingham case, Birmingham Six case, was very important, a major issue during 1989, not least because the Guildford Four had been released that um, in January, February, and it was. It was really was a major issue. He was being asked, he was being asked many questions in the Dáil about the Birmingham Six. And he also was receiving mail from members of the Birmingham Six asking him why he wasn't taking it to Strasbourg. And he was, uh, he, he thought di- diplomacy was the better route. Uh, the British, by the way, were very determined that these issues, the Maguire, Birmingham and Guildford cases would not be conflated. Mm-hmm. They were very, very uh, keen on that. One can see why probably guilty consciences about all of them. Uh, the Irish would see it all as being of a piece. There were no surprises, I think, in Ireland by this stage that uh, the, the, the the way the Guildford Four had emerged uh, and, and how they'd come out. And there, there was impatience in, in Ireland about this. And um, when the... Douglas Heard now is trying to take... He was the, by then the Home Secretary and he was trying to take oxygen out of the... Um, the, these cases. It was his responsibility to refer them to the Court of Appeal okay. and he'd then been succeeded by Tom King and this was his response to the whole issue. Until there is something new, I'm quite clear that my successor, uh, indeed he's already said so in Parliament, uh, will not, he won't see grounds for referring it back. Now if there was something new appeared, which had not been before the Court of Appeal on either its two hearings of the matter, well that creates a different situation which he would take account of. I mean, Hurd is really taking the oxygen out of that and he's saying uh, that it's all... Really, he sounds a bit bored by it, really, and he's under too much pressure about it. But uh, he... he, now he, he the, the British also, of course, wanted to insist that the it would be for the Court of Appeal to decide. The question of putting it before them was a political issue, but there would be no politics in the verdict on the merits of the case. It would go straight to the Court of Appeal and would be a matter of law and not of politics. And did I see, I saw in your piece in the Irish Times yesterday, that there was concern about the tabloids as well, is that right? Uh, th- well, there was always concern about the tabloids and how they might show something. But I, I think in, in a way, the, there's not much you can do about the tabloids. You know, they will, they will be tabloidy, if that's the right word. And not a lot one can do about it because <laughs> it will be reduced to, to uh, a, a, simple, a simple headline. But when Charles Hockey then was asked uh, about the Birmingham Six, um, and as I say, he had been under pressure from not least the Birmingham Six themselves writing directly to the Taoiseach. Uh, Tommy Gorman asked him about whether there'd been disagreement between himself and Thatcher when he'd raised it at the EU the marginal meeting at the summit. No, I didn't say we disagreed, but we, uh, we exchanged views. Uh, and so far as uh, we're concerned, we have a very definite view about the Birmingham Six, uh, which we state both publicly and privately, uh, namely that the outcome of the Guildford Four uh, case makes a case for a review, a reopening uh, of the Birmingham Six case almost unanswerable. We we didn't disagree, but we exchanged views. That's a great hawkism, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, is there anything in the archive that reveals 
early signs of, of I, I guess you mentioned about, about Thatcher's view of German reunification, early signs of how Thatcher and Britain were viewing Europe at that point in the Euroscepticism that would come back to bite us all? Well, I suppose there are, but they were they were always there when Thatcher was talking about Europe. You know, we famously, she wanted her money back and all of that. And Nicholas Fenn, who was the British ambassador in Dublin, he made efforts before the Madrid summit, which was in the summer of that year, to get um, the Irish on side. If uh, he he used the phrase that it, it that Thatcher felt a might lonesome as she was making her views on Europe and the direction in which it was going. And then she, he said also that there was the social charter was seen by the British as codswallop. Um, when Thatcher herself uh, was talking to Ho, he, he, she complained about the airy-fairy talk about European Monetary Union. And of course, the British didn't join the European Monetary Union. Um, but there's that tone all the time. Charlie tries to Kind of now, one is depending on the notes. In my case, the Irish notes by Dermot Nally of these exchanges. Okay, they're yeah. not verbatim accounts, and mm-hmm. some things can be can be lost. There's never anything added, I would say. But the tone and the note you will you will generally pick up. But these would not be absolutely direct quotes, but it does show that she was with Hoki as with so many others, not afraid to sort of say what she thought about the direction of Europe. Um, now, when Hoki was asked this about, uh, again by Tommy Gorman in an RTE This Week interview, about Thatcher's known antipathy to many of the EU's policies. The British Prime Minister and the British delegation uh, have uh, their own view about certain developments in the community. They're opposed to certain things. Uh, They make that opposition clear. Uh, They put their case clearly to the community. But then when the decision is taken, that's the end of the matter. So there are the seeds of so many things there, aren't there? You can hear in both of them. Yes, you you can, but but there's no. But also you you hear in in Charles Howie there. He say, he's really determined to say nothing. Yeah, you know, except that it's all it's and he's not. Nor is he te- really telling the truth because Maggie stayed on message and remained difficult uh, within all of those EU summits and didn't hide that view to anybody. You said at the beginning there that Margaret Thatcher, I, I don't know how you put it, didn't really know uh, much about Northern Ireland. or, or had, Did she have a clear policy on Northern Ireland overall and where she stood on it? Uh, well, I, I don't believe she, she did. Uh, first of all, she knew very little about it when she became Tory leader. And what she did know was kind of taught to her by Airy Neve, who was her Northern Ireland spokes, spokesperson. He was later... Uh, assassinated in the coming out of the car park in the uh, House of Commons, as we know. Um, and Ian Gow would have been another advisor. And he was uh, killed in his own the front drive of his own car in, in uh, by the provisional IRA uh, at the end of her time or about the end of her time in office. But she had no fixed policy on Northern Ireland. Uh, and in my view, she was unreadable. I mean, she went, she, she was she was kind of all over the place. She she said that Northern Ireland was as British as Finchley. She often said that the border should have been further drawn further north. Now, by often, I'm saying including private conversations mm-hmm. that she had with people. Um, and she asked J- James Pryor at one stage whether he believed the British should uh, adopt a tactical withdrawal from Northern Ireland. So over the period, she is 
really unreadable. She had no fixed view. Her, the chapter covering Northern Ireland in her own memoir was written by Charles Powell, ghosted by him for her, and she signed off on it. And it is very shallow. It's myopic. It's very Thatcher-centred. Um, she dismisses the Hillsborough Agreement, the Anglo-Irish Agreement that she signed with Gareth Fitzgerald, which w- probably was by by kind of by British historians would be seen by and by those who helped to get her over the line on it would be seen as her best greatest achievement. But it wasn't seen, of course, by the Ulster Unionists in that way. They saw it as Ireland p- South putting a toe in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and didn't like that at all. But it has changed the relationship. And, and how it came about, in my view, was just by the British deciding that they could not deliver a policy within Northern Ireland based on the dynamics within the North, that they needed the wider framework, that geography mattered. Geography matters again with Brexit. That's the problem with Brexit, mm-hmm. is that it now having... The Hillsborough Agreement was... <coughs> A, a terrific political achievement by the Irish diplomats and the British uh, diplomats who got it over the line. And it changed all the relationships between all the parties. And But in my view, anyway, it changed them for the better because it made them more realistic. Um, Thatcher did not believe that and came to believe that it had been a mistake of hers to do it. Now, if you read, as opposed to her memoir, if you read Charles Moore's absolutely marvellous Absolutely, one of the best political biographies uh, published in the last century, I would say. Three-volume biography of Thatcher. He is absolutely on the money about her Northern Ireland policy and understands, and has his sources too. I mean, I know the Irish sources very well. He had 20 subjects about Thatcher to research. I was hugely impressed by his sources on on her Irish policy. Um, But he has a much more sophisticated view of all of that than she has in her own memoir. Okay. okay. Uh, John Bowman, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much uh, for doing that for us. And we'll take a break. Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back. Now, our panel are still with us. Uh, Sinead O'Carroll, Larry Donnelly, Alice Leahy, Rona McRae and, and Stephanie Preisner. Uh, Rona McRae, that was fascinating uh, about the, the echoes down time of, of the relationship there. The fact that the internal kind of geographical contradictions of the North that were, st- you know, creative ambiguity got us so far, but they will always be there, those contradictions, won't they? And, and, and they're erupting again now, as John points out. Yes, and that she said, Thatcher starts out saying Northern Ireland is the British as Finchley. And then she realises that can't be sustained. In the same way they said, oh, we're going to go ahead with Brexit, forget about Northern Ireland, forget about the Republic. And then they realised that can't be sustained. And then the other, which the DUP have now learned, same thing happened to UUP in 1985, was uh, the UUP went all out to oppose the Anglo-Irish Agreement. They pulled, played all their cards and they lost. And then eventually they had to adjust to the settlement that became the Good Friday Agreement. And same way, the DUP went all out to uh, oppose uh, Theresa May's compromise, which gave them 95% of what they wanted, went all out to oppose it, backed Boris Johnson, and now have been stabbed in the back and are getting almost nothing of what they want. Is there an argument that we've backed Boris Johnson as well and now we're getting stabbed in the back too? Well, we we didn't give uh, Theresa May the gap to get through. We kind of gave it to Johnson and we thought, OK, we're not going to actually get Boris Johnson. Now we're going, he's going to do a U-turn or whatever. But 
on he goes. He's determined, isn't he? I mean, in terms of what he gave, Theresa May and Boris Johnson gave the Irish government the same thing. They both said no controls on the border. Now, Theresa May was doing that by restricting Britain's future trading agreements, but they, they would have to follow the EU a bit more. Uh, Boris Johnson did it by cutting the Ulster Unions adrift. So, from the Irish perspective, we got the same things. Okay, but are we not? Go- are we not potentially going to get a much less? Uh, close relationship between um, the the EU and the UK and thus between us trade-wise east-west? For two things that'll affect us, it'll, uh, it'll affect us a lot. It'll affect services on the, on, on the border a lot. It could be, so goods are covered, but services are not by the agreement. Uh, so um, it could be very complicated to get a taxi from Donegal to Derry or something like that, because that's a service, not a good. The other thing for Britain makes a big difference is for the Scottish Nationalist Party, who are now in a panic because they're finding out that if Britain is distant from the EU and they're independent in the EU, they're cut off from their main market. And the Mike Russell, the, MS, the SNP Constitutional Affairs Minister, was on the radio the other morning in Britain. I thought it was a Brexiteer and he kept saying, oh, they'll never cut us off. We do so much trade. And I realised he wasn't talking. He was talking about Scotland being cut off from the rest of the UK. <laughs> and actually, it took me a minute to realise it wasn't some Tory. It was, a Scot- it was uh, the SNP. So they've really been hit by it because economically, uh, the independence is, mu- is much harder now for them, even if emotionally it might be, might be easier because they don't like Boris Johnson. Some of what Sinead. John was saying there remind me of Colin McCarthy's piece in the Sunday Independent today. Colin was writing about how Brexit wasn't inevitable. A lot of the theory at the moment is Brexit was inevitable because the UK was never really bought into the European project. And McCarthy goes through how that is not true. But when John was saying there about, you know, Thatcher's issues with the EU are very similar to what we are, we're hearing about in the last couple of years from from Conservative Party. And he mentioned in memoir, um, the three volumes would people don't want three volumes and they do want to get a little bit of a snippet of what Thatcher thought of Europe and Northern Ireland. Erin Eve's biography from a couple of years ago, The Man Who Was Saturday. It also goes through his fascinating, Erin Eve's fascinating life of breaking out of um, cold, of cold war, and, um But it also gives you a little bit about how he was pro-European initially. Thatcher wasn't. They were in cahoots about everything else. He knew a bit more about what was going on in Northern Ireland, but very much took on the unionist cause and the fight. So if you don't want three memoirs, that's a very short, interesting book that no, you can No, I, I haven't read either the three memoirs are the one but I have read Colin McCarthy and it, it would make you kind of t- kick yourself that that he points out that like the, the EU was never a huge issue and it was uh, they, they, they've been polling for years asking British people what were your for, what were your top three issues Housing and only 10% else. of them used to mention the mm. EU then mm. Cameron didn't have mm. to do what he did Cameron punted that if I get a majority We'll have we'll have a Brexit vote. He, the chances of him get getting a majority, majority. were, yeah. So yeah, it was, it was dogged by stage, bad luck all the way, wasn't it? And at yeah, that and stage, the, we thought a Labour leader would probably back staying in the mm. EU. But then we they got Jeremy Corbyn, who obviously yeah. was very lukewarm on. I think Jeremy Corbyn is singularly the worst bit of luck that played into all this part. You you agree, Ronan McRae? Well, without I mean, if you look without 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 Jeremy Corbyn at the at the head of the Labour Party. The Labour Party could have stormed home because the Tories, we forget now after the election, but the Tories were in disarray this time last year. They got 9% in the European elections uh, and Jeremy Corbyn by being confused on Brexit and then selling a kind of uh, unappealing version. Mm. But the only thing about the last UK election was that 
the first election I can remember where voters didn't like any of the party leaders. Normally one is up and one is down. And if you think about it, a lot of that is because in both cases, the leaders of the party were elected by the members, not the MPs. And the membership of the parties is very unrepresentative. So we got two leaders who were catnip to the party members, but actually not popular in the electorate more widely. And the sidelining of kind of institutions and MPs for party members was really damaging. Something we should think about if we want to go down the road of elected mayors and things like that. Enfranchising party members rather than parliamentarians ended up producing a menu that the electorate hated. Okay, but, but we're all for democracy. We don't mm. want the elites choosing our leaders. And, and, but, but I suppose, as in Labour, you can pack the house three quid ahead, join up, yeah, and yeah. Uh, this is, this is <laughs> well, what you well, get. Well, democracy now, needs institutions. Yeah. Direct democracy has not really worked anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, fair enough. Now, um, um, we'll, we'll mention Brexit in another context now in a minute. There are some really exciting new routes opening up, though, from Ireland this year, including direct flights to Tel Aviv, Rhodes, and Menorca, to name just a few. So, Owen Corry, editor of Travel. Lexter is here to tell us all about them. Good afternoon, Owen. Afternoon, Brandon. Let's just, we, we, we won't stay on Brexit too long, but before we look at those new routes, um, we look at some of the issues facing the travel and the aviation sectors and how they will impact on the, the listeners and the Irish consumers. So if I may Brexit, finish, is that going to affect it, our travel? Uh, it will indeed. And I'm going to come in on Ronan's point there. What isn't also representative is that 37% is not a landslide. Uh, when you put the two uh, leave parties, this is something that's been pointed out by a few people, but hasn't got a lot of noise. Their their grand total is 43%. Um, 57% of the British in voters in that election voted for parties that wanted to stay in the European Union. So the first pass this the was always going to be the case when the they allowed him to... The post- System is the they allowed him to really re-run a referendum where he didn't problem. have to win it. He yeah. only needed to get 40%. To, yeah, yeah. yeah. And anyway, going to how's it going to affect our, our mini-breaks? That's what we want. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to affect uh, Britain's mini-breaks massively. The uh, European aviation industry has been looking with uh, a very, very jaundiced eye, even as, as much as the rest of um, the world has been looking at what's going on, the shenanigans in Britain. And they've given extensions as the deadlines came and the deadlines were missed for an aviation agreement. Okay, we can have the same aviation terms. They've also put in a very interesting clause that it can be unilaterally dropped immediately overnight by the European airspace regulators and the European aviators uh, should they chose to do so. But what that does is it allows British Airlines access to the rest of Europe under our existing Open Skies Agreement. Open Skies, there's an entire generation have grown up with it. For those who didn't uh, grow up with it, I remind you what used to happen. Every single flight had to be a bilateral agreement between two governments. It meant that the national airline, it was always national airlines, were allowed to fly Ireland to France and France to Ireland. The fares were virtually carved up uh, between the two airlines. People paid £240 to go to London. Open Skies came in the 90s, one of the big beneficiaries of Open Skies. Lots of airlines scrambled to get the benefit of it. One of the big beneficiaries was Ryanair. What they did was revolutionised transport for a whole generation of Irish people, cheap flights. What Michael O'Leary, who is uh, heads up Ryanair, says is that one of the benefits that the Europe uh, of Europe that Britain, British ordinary British people, those vi- people who voted uh, to leave the European Union, have enjoyed without even realising it, is cheap flights. And he says that there is a great likelihood, particularly when you have governments with big national airlines like the Germans and the French, that they will use the new rules to punish 
Britain and cut off aviation access to their cheap flight, their cheap holidays in Benidorm. Those uh, satellite channel programmes about Benidorm might be a good casualty of that. But anyway, what will happen uh, for us is we depend quite heavily. We have about 40 to 30 to uh, late 30 percentage of our flights are to and from Britain. So should the aviation agreements come to a halt, that leaves a huge big problems for not just the Dublin routes to British uh, regional airports, of which we have a huge number, but also our regional airports. It's a big uh, question mark uh, to use and the cliche is that a big chunk of our tourism then, it's a huge chunk of over. our tourism it's more than a, a, it's, a, it's not half quite half our tourism but let's say of our 11 million tourists that come into the island 4.5 million will come from Britain um, if you if anything happens that aviation there is no other, or their ferry services can handle maybe 2.5 3 million passengers but we are very very vulnerable to uh, things going wrong with the aviation agreement and the, as things stand, there is a 12 sh- month extension on the existing agreement, all to be renegotiated, hugely complicated, and no start in that negotiation. And if we've learned anything, it's that anything can happen. Is there an opportunity for us here at all? A huge opportunity for Ireland to be, set themselves up as the gateway to Europe for North America. The, our second biggest tourist market, about 2 million of our tourists come in from North America, from USA and Canada every year. A lot of them come in, base themselves in England. It's friendly, it's English speaking. They don't have to get their head around too much and use it to base their travels further on. We've terrific service. We've 200 uh, routes from Dublin Airport to European Airport. So we could actually uh, slide ourselves okay. in as the place uh, for to base yourself on your way into uh, the rest of Europe, especially as um, barriers of entry become complicated. Uh, They they will probably not be that complicated if you have a UK passport. Um, But if you have a a passport trying to navigate your way into Britain and on into Europe or from Britain into Europe, it could become complicated. It's one of the many Brexit unities that uh, we have coming up and (laughs) we haven't uh, probably itemised enough of them or or, um, shouted enough about them. Okay, years. back back to the um, travel and aviation industry. Now, obviously, uh, as it always does at a gathering like this, this year, the environment has come up. I suppose a lot of people make the point that like the, the this hasn't really hit aviation yet, has it? Are, are there are there taxes coming down the tracks there that are going to hit that hard? Almost certainly, and this is going to be bigger than Brexit in terms of uh, our aviation industry is huge. It's bigger than the size of the island. We not just I mean on Christmas Eve, Ryanair will carry will have carried 145 million passengers during the year. That makes it the biggest airline in Europe, overtaking the Lufthansa Group. What we have also is a huge uh, leasing industry based out of Ireland. So everything that happens in aviation, we are about 30% of the planes in the sky are leased out of Ireland. Anything that damages the scale and size of that industry, and we've seen a lot of damage during, during, due to the Boeing Max uh, controversy mm-hmm. that listeners will need no introduction to. But where the next big, uh, um, the, the wind is blowing uh, particularly um, harshly for aviation at European level. It's quite 
clear from the Ursula von der Leyen Commission. They only mentioned tourism once in their entire draft document and the uh, uh, first uh, sort of statements of intent that the aviation is going to be uh, treated a little bit more harshly than it has in the past. There's talks about taxes on fuel. There's also talk, talk much more seriously for Ireland because as I say you you have to either fly here or swim here or sail here. Um, they're talking about uh, putting on um, in, individual governments are putting on uh, taxes. The Scandinavians have already done so. Uh, the Belgians and the Dutch are talking about it. The French are, are on the brink of doing so and the Looks like it's going to it's going to bring us to the end of the the that the glorious window there of twenty years where people were flying around the place willy nilly and mini breaks in Eastern Europe and all the rest of it winter sun all of it conceivably because two things will happen uh, the fares will go up uh, it will disproportionately hit the low fare airlines which are Ryanair EasyJet and Wizz uh, and it will be sort of seen as a bit of protection for the Lufthansa's and Air France's of the world which is a bonus for those governments the second thing that will happen is airlines will look at the viability of their routes and a lot of those uh, you know in the back in the old day people flew from big hub to big hub you flew to Paris you got off and you went on to Nice or whatever the real growth in Europe has been point to point from smaller airports to smaller airports amazing routes like that Kerry and Knock have got to uh, Cologne and places like that so all of those routes are only viable with uh, because of the low tax environment in aviation if that changes, airlines will look at those routes, start chopping back on them. They're, they will be cautious. It won't be the consumer who will decide. It will be the airlines that will decide. And we could say we could end up okay. with our West of Ireland, uh, uh, small lush deans and B&Bs in the West of Ireland, small restaurants, feeling the impact of a movement that they conceivably agree with an environmental movement. The aviation people are saying our flights are greener than they've ever been let us at it but I'm not sure that argument's been heard Okay so time is not on our side then as regards getting in a bit more travel tell us about the new routes that we have uh, out of Ireland this year One of the things that's happened is that we have felt slightly fewer of them and the, one of the, the immediate cause of that is that Boeing would have expected 58 new Boeing uh, 737 Maxes next year they are we're talking about 30 a uh, couple of weeks ago now they're talking only about 10 so we had 35 of these last year we have about 24 next year but the good news is there's some really interesting stuff in there. Uh, the bottom of the boot of Italy, everybody can visualise that in their map. Uh, Brindisi is one of the new Aer Lingus routes. It's a particularly good value uh, side of Italy to go to Sardinia. And, and Puglia is just uh, absolutely, is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Sardinia, um, now, never as popular as Sicily. And uh, we, t- we have very, very good access to Sardinia opening up. Thanks again to Aer Lingus next so year. So Aer Lingus are going to back to Algero up in the Algero, north of Algero and yeah. they're going to Rhodes in Greece as well. Okay. Uh, our Lingus, we're planning on um, they've three North American routes every year, but they're not delivering any this year because uh, while Boeing has their problems, Airbus also has their problems, the aircraft that were to fly those routes are a little bit later than they might have been. And uh, then uh, we Ra- have... Ryanair have announced a new route to Menorca. Yeah, Menorca is new for Ryanair. Marseille are, are is, is new to Ryanair. One and Menorca, an underestimated kind of island in a lot of ways, isn't it? Uh, quieter and more family than um, uh, Mallorca and obviously Ibiza even though both Mallorca and Ibiza have little quiet uh, you can mm. you can escape the madness in both of those uh, islands but Mallorca is more associated uh, with a mature family product and that's a new Ryanair route 
and we'll have direct flights to Tel Aviv in Israel. Really exciting. We've had lots of uh, charter activity to the Holy Land down the years. Uh, El Al are um, introducing a flight next summer and that links up Ireland and Israel. Um, there will be a big inbound Israeli uh, market as well. Um, but obviously it's a it's a hugely historic country with every, there's no 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 matter whether you're atheistic or uh, Christian you cannot escape um, all that uh, narrative uh, yeah. of the the Holy Land and they and do say Tel Aviv is a great party town Tel Aviv as well, is party is party central it's a beach city there's very few of those sort of major beach cities across Europe and as they say it uh, doesn't go to sleep okay Owen Kari thanks for that you're going to stay with us Owen aren't you Absolutely. and we'll take a break Podcast The Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio. Welcome back, Sinead O'Carroll, uh, Alice Leahy, Ronan McRae and Stephanie Preisner still with us. Owen Curry has stayed with us. And now, um, obviously, we're not just at the end of the year, we're at the end of a decade. But um, back at the beginning of 2010, did we have any idea about how different the world would look now as we head into the 20s uh, in, as regards technology and how we live our lives and everything. So we're joined now in studio by Professor Barry O'Sullivan of the School of Computer Science at University College Cork. And he's been looking for us at how technology has been changing everything in our lives over the last 10 years. So Barry, before we get on to Snapchat and Tinder and, and voice activated assistance and all that. Just remind us first, what, what life was like uh, back in the dark ages at the start of the decade? I'm not sure that, so I'm not sure that was that dark. Um, 2010 was the, um, I suppose the big thing that happened in 2010 was the, was the release of the iPad. You know, so um, everybody is probably sporting one of these things now. It wasn't the first of these tablet things, but um, it was probably the one that transformed the world. Um, the, the kind of modern focus on big data, on artificial intelligence, we, on privacy, that was all sort of, uh, that was that was all in the future, so to speak. You yeah. Know? Did we have our smartphones at that oh, stage? Oh, we did. Uh, yeah, the iPhone was introduced in twenty in 2007, I think. So uh, we're about two and a half, three years into the smartphone. So they were certainly picking up. But the whole app world wasn't really uh, developed as much as it is now by a long shot. Okay, were there apps at that stage? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There were um, that was the, um, you know, the, the I suppose the, the iPhone was the start of that whole industry. And by, by 2010, there was certainly a very strong industry around that. But um, I suppose we weren't as absorbed in that kind of thing as we are today. Yeah, in, in the sense that a lot of us live our daily lives through apps. Well, absolutely, sense, and that's, we? you know, we, we, uh, we hadn't lost our children into little rectangular boxes at that stage either, you know, so... Um, yeah, we, we, we weren't concerned at that point when the iPad came out, we weren't thinking, oh no, my I th- God. No, I don't think we were. I think we were sort of, we might have been worried about um, what they might see online, you know, so um, would they stumble across stuff that they shouldn't see? But I don't think we had even imagined that, you know, kids and even ourselves as adults would be spending so much time on these devices. I think that whole concept of screen time was something that we hadn't even imagined would be an issue. Now, one thing that wouldn't probably be as visible to a lot of us, your area of artificial Mm. intelligence, that has actually been creating seismic change kind of underneath the surface, hasn't it, in the last 10 years? Yeah, of course. Explain a bit to us about that. I suppose AI is one of these um, sort of longest longest overnight successes in a sense, you know, so um, it's been around for, you could argue, a couple of hundred years. I suppose the term was invented 70 years ago. 
But around 2010, 2012, you know, this field called deep learning, this sort of this particular type of method that could um, that we now use for uh, machine translations or translating languages, recognizing images, that was just we were on the cusp of that in 2010, and that was because of the availability of very cheap computing power, but most importantly, a huge amount of data. When we all started using those smart devices, we were creating and sharing lots and lots of data and that enabled that, that whole industry. So I suppose around 2012, what we now call AI, which is really the subfield of machine learning, um, became really prevalent. And is it, it's AI that in many ways has fed into the changes in how elections happen or can be well, interfered with as well, is it? Yeah, well, you know, I think we give a lot more credit to AI than, it's, than it deserves. You know, I think uh, one thing about the last decade is that you could argue it's the decade of hype in a sense. You okay, know? yeah, <laughs> so yeah. The, um, you know, um, and AI is certainly one of those very, very hype things, you know, so... Um, uh, I think people attribute abilities to AI that it simply doesn't have, you know, but certainly, um, you know, in that world where there's vast amounts of information being created because we're using, you know, technology in different ways and so on, um, you know, it, it does give us an opportunity for doing things smartly in ways that we've never done before. And so um, if people want to call that AI, you know, fine, but let's not, um, certainly the robots are not running over the hills to kill us yet. Uh, yeah, you know? but you think they are, but you're playing it down, I think. <laughs> uh, no, 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 The AI community have been told to no, dampen no, no, all if, that down. If, if yeah. a robot comes over the hill, all you have to do is just wait a little bit. His batteries will run down in about five minutes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, okay. Um, taking our you jobs. Do, <laughs> you, you talk about uh, the hype on the negative side of yeah. things was there a hype on the positive side as well in that was 2010 was it, it was more of an optimistic new dawn and we thought technology was going to yeah. change our lives in all kinds of good ways yeah we, we did I suppose you know we saw all sorts of things that uh, we really wanted to happen and they happened you know so um, you know 2010 we didn't have streaming as we have now you know so Spotify Netflix existed but you or sending cassettes to the mail, you know. Um, yeah. So the idea of being able to sit at home and choose whatever you wanted to watch, I'm conscious I'm in RT now and, and everything. So, uh, um, but the uh, the whole streaming industry didn't exist. Um, you know, lots of aspects of social media and connecting with people didn't exist. Of course, Facebook existed, but you know things like Instagram and Snapchat and all that sort of and stuff. And do you think exist. it was social media back then? Was it viewed more as that this could be a great force for good than we tend to regard it yeah, now? Yeah, I, th- I think it was. I think pe- people like the fact that they could connect to, to people that they hadn't connected to previously. And what's fun is if you go back and look at very early uh, Facebook posts, how people would actually write posts was very, very different, you know. The way they expressed themselves was totally different. In, in um, what way? Well, so, sort of naively, you know. Um, I'm in the kitchen cooking my dinner was, you know, would, would be things that people would share, you know. So um, I was just looking at Twitter over the over the Christmas and I was surprised, and it's sort of shocking how negative it is, you know. That, that sort of negativity didn't exist in 2010, you know. That's something that's, it's quite a recent phenomenon, you know, so I think we were, it was a much more, um, as you say, optimistic thing. Um, we held high hopes for it. Uh, we didn't see the dangers. You know, we, we weren't concerned about individual privacy as much as we are today. Um, that's become something that we're really, really concerned about. We're really concerned about privacy, elections, as you said earlier. Yeah. Um, so Is anything going to happen around privacy? Is there any sense of, of more regulation coming in around people's well, data and so on? Well, yes, I think there is. Um, the European Commissioner, uh, the new European uh, Commission President, rather, um, Ursula von der Leyen, has said that she's going to introduce a regulation on AI in her first 100 days. Now, I'm not quite sure that's really even technically possible. 
Um, but it certainly signals that she wants to make changes there. So I think in Europe we will see sort of GDPR-like things coming in for AI systems. Driven more by Europe than, than the US. Certainly yeah. driven more by Europe than the US or China. I think uh, in Europe we're very concerned about individual fundamental rights and you know privacy and you know protecting individuals' agency and autonomy much more than other and had anyone thought about this 10 years ago when all this started? Um, actually, no, I don't think they did. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people will probably tell you, well, certainly, you know, ethics, you know, um, in technology was something that uh, people worked on. But uh, not to the extent that there is today, you know, the um, the whole AI and data ethics community is a vast community that didn't exist 10 years ago, frankly. Um, like, sure, there were people in philosophy departments and in legal departments and social scientists who were talking about these sorts of things. But the tech, the tech people weren't talking about this at all. The idea that this could have a negative impact on us or children or well-being or mood. Yeah. Uh, to the extent that, you know, they do. But um, we didn't actually envisage that, I think, you know, to a large extent. Stephanie, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, I just think it's interesting that... Sometimes I think when it comes to the end of a decade, you start thinking about like, this is what we thought 10 years ago. But, you know, you say people are concerned about um, their safety online and their protection. And yet they're still bringing, I don't know how many people got Alexas for Christmas, like bringing spyware into their home, using their date of birth as their password, accepting cookies because they want to read some gossip driven article from the Internet. Like these are ongoing issues that people say hypothetically oh we're really concerned about our privacy online and GDPR well get your spyware out of your <laughs> kitchen so and stop asking yeah, people to I play music there, for you there is an element as well though of there is a generation coming through now for whom privacy because life is still simple for them it hasn't become complicated they think I've nothing to hide Pri- well, privacy is not a huge issue for them is well, it when they you, do polls but young people so Stephanie's absolutely right you know that, that people do sacrifice their privacy for a very very low cost you know like how many time like how many times have you been on social media where you see something like you know d- discover what muppet you are you know yeah. and you press a button <laughs> and you accept all these terms and conditions where everything about you is basically sort of sucked into the cloud uh, so that you can discover that you're fuzzy bear or something you know like that's not a, that's not a reasonable payment for your data right yeah. but the um, but young people use technology totally differently to adults you know if you look at if you look at your typical you know young person's instagram account you know what you have to find well i'm talking teenagers i'm talking okay. you know sort of uh, you know, say uh, 12 to 12 to university age, you know, you'll often find they've got zero posts at all. You know, they, they share in a story-like manner. They store, they share in a way where things sort of disappear. And that's not, of course, privacy, right? Um, it's an illusion of privacy. Though. Yes, absolutely. So, the, you know, I think they see the world very, very differently to how we do, you know. there's a We've a lot of Chinese students, right? And they find uh, London very quaint and low-tech because yeah. they are used in China to doing everything on their phones, everything online. Yeah, and including being watched by the government we, all the time. And, and they're not bothered by privacy. No, so they yeah. kind of think, oh, whatever. And they, they find it, they think, oh, it's like going back to the 1970s here. I can't do everything on my phone. Yeah. Partly because they culturally or politically, wherever the, for whatever reason, yeah, yeah. they're not as concerned about privacy. They, they but, skipped all that uh, that credit card thing and their, their phone is their metro ticket. It's like it's moving from... Uh, 20 years behind to 20 years ahead of us they are astonished that we don't use our, the technology more but, of course the but there are no privacy concerns whatsoever. but the social scoring system is, is, is well up and running you know this uh, you've all seen the, the Black Mirror episode probably yeah. where you know yeah. you all have a score between this 0 is and 9 actually this is actually happening in China this is actually happening and it's it's has been developed and has de- been deployed far ahead of schedule 
um, which is interesting. Um, but, you know, talking about accessing data about, about individuals, if you look at Estonia, which is probably the most advanced country in Europe, um, sit down with any any Estonian person you want to, and they will take you through, they'll open up their app, all of their personal data, which is shared with the government, and they'll be able to tell you who accessed it, when and what, for what purpose. So the idea that, you know, for example, here in Ireland, we're very concerned about the, you know, the public services card. You know, we don't like the idea of a national identity card, generally speaking. You know, so there's a, there's a lot of hoo-ha about it. Estonia, Estonians don't understand that at all, you know, because they, they grew up with this. You know, they grew up with a very transparent form of government, but it's transparent in both ways. So if somebody checks your, you know, logs in to check your address, you see the fact That's that somebody has logged in. That's really yeah. the big difference. The PSC and yeah. one of the big problems with the PSC is yeah. people Who's weren't sure to what departments were getting access yeah. to what. And yeah. uh, Elaine Edwards did a lot of work on that, that yeah. hang on, how come the Department of Transport are seeing what car I drive, etc. Exactly. Yeah. One of, I think, the most problematic parts of it is that we're now not, uh, like, it's come to a point where, sorry, um, you can't kind of come to an agreement. Did you actually look at your she phone while you were speaking? I looked at my on, phone on the there because I was trying to make... I'm, I'm, I'm really hyped up about this, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, these arguments happen um, where you can't actually have discussions like this and talk about what you're seeing online because what we're seeing online is so different. The Google results that come up for me are different to what come up for oh, you, yeah. Brendan, mm-hmm. what come up for you, Sinead, mm-hmm. because we've been in a decade of this feedback loop of surveillance and being surveilled and giving them information about you so that it's so tailored. The news and the information that you see is so tailored. Like I got So there Christmas is no presents. collective anymore. There's in no a collective. Sense. I got okay. Christmas presents this year that were targeted at me based on like I, sent to my friends and my boyfriend of what I would like. Yeah. And on his Instagram, yeah, I opened up a Facebook account for yeah. the Camogie Association, and they were, you know, the, what was your date of birth? Nineteen hundred and four. It was very easy. I started getting ads for incontinence pads. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And it stops any sort of discussion in a group. Sinead, how how has technology impacted most in your life in the last ten years? Do you think? Um, well, probably mostly my job. Yeah. Um, in that. 10 years ago, the journal.e didn't exist. Well, we set up in, at the end of, of 2010. Um, and so, you know, we have half a million readers a day now. So that that has changed the lives of um, a, a lot of people in Ireland. Um, I think then outside of obviously work things, I think probably um, the streaming services is the one thing that you'd say mm. affects your life on a more than daily basis from um, how you listen to music, to podcasting is a huge part of, you yeah. know, my my daily life, yeah. my daily routine, my commute. Um, and Netflix, like how would we have predicted in 2010 that we would watch television in the ways mm. we watch television now, that we might binge watch six hours of a full series like at 2am. Yeah, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder equally, will we keep doing that? I, you know? I wonder, is that a moment? And I, I wouldn't, I'm not going to buy shares in Netflix right now, I would have to say. I wonder, are we at peak Netflix? People starting to say, yeah, I'm wasting a lot of time watching. There's a lot of great stuff on there and people saying, I ended up watching six, eight episodes of something and it, it was okay. It's, That's what a lot of people say about a lot of things in Netflix. Yeah, it was okay. Yeah, the personalization point is very, very interesting because I think um, people, I think maybe three, four years ago, they enjoyed personalization. You know, they enjoyed the fact that, you know, you're what was served up to you was something that uh, you would like. But I think 
you know, a couple of years ago, maybe one or two years ago, we started getting very creeped out by that. And I think mm-hmm. now we really understand that we're all living in these in sort of individual filter bubbles. Not well, maybe not individualized entirely, mm-hmm. but we're we're sort of shacked up with people who've got similar views, and we don't see the world beyond that boundary. And then when we're forced to see it, it's quite a alarming it's and a arresting, and it's yeah. not something. And we don't, don't see the person Alison. behind it. No, we don't see the person. And I think that's a huge problem. I mean, I remember walking with a very vulnerable man to see his GP, and the woman behind the desk, she never looked at him. She never looked at me. She was looking at the computer. And if there's a mistake, the computer is always blamed, but somebody has to feed the information into the computer. And I think also people out socialising. I mean, if you go out and you're sitting in a pub and you're sitting beside somebody, the next thing somebody takes photo, you're having an affair or something, you know, this, <laughs> or a young person having a drink and they go to get insurance, even though the pint in their hand mightn't be theirs. And I think people need people. And I think an awful lot of young people who are very... Um, Said, uh, I mean, you can't give a hug to somebody on the on the phone, but you can have an artificial friend who's meaningless. And I think this mm. type of debate is very necessary. Well, so, so uh, the, what you're saying, Alice, is that we're all more connected than we ever were before. But yes, we're more disconnected actually, yeah, as yeah. human beings. And you know, to yeah, express yeah. yourself, to show if you're sad or excited. And I think, and I'm not a psychologist, and you don't need to be a psychologist, I think, to know that. And even to, when I get on the bus in the morning, of all these lovely young people, but they're all on their phone. And um, there's something sad about it, I think. Yes, I love technology. I use my phone. I follow the journal on my iPad. I'm (laughs) not on on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. And I've no intention of going on it. But I think we really, I think questions need to be asked. Stay off it. Do you regret going on social media and getting involved with it, Stephanie? Like in this decade, that's why I've started and deleted my Facebook. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's terrible for your mental health. Every time I go online, I feel terrible about myself because I'm comparing myself to other people or comparing myself to my old self or someone on Twitter like even now that I'm sitting here I've looked at my phone and there are people complaining on Twitter about something that I've said earlier on and that'll give me a worry why are you doing that to yourself because you're nodding along there about the social media well I think what Alice said is I heard an interview with the guy who said he got a 200 um, wishes on his birthday on Facebook and he said well that's great so I wouldn't have heard from 180 of them except of the 20 people who would have called him before most of them felt they'd done their duty by saying happy birthday on Facebook so his net real connection because he didn't get any calls dropped and I thought that is a yeah. it, 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 social media can advertise itself as an addition to your connectivity but actually it ends up replacing more valuable forms mm. of connection. What is What technologically has changed your life most in the last 10 years, Orin? Well, I remember someone telling me about an iPad and saying, but why would you want one? Because I have the internet mm. on my computer and now I have, I'm, I'm watching, I'm listening to journal a lot, yeah. I even, I'm also <laughs> Netflix, all these things. And okay. to the degree that I don't feel I want to. Yeah. I, th- I think there is a way that we can look at it positively. Like Alice, I think before we weren't all talking to each other on the bus before, you know, people had <laughs> newspapers mm. or they they read books and mm. you were able to choose. So we can choose our our internet life a bit better. And I think that we will eventually okay. start doing that. I think you know what I think is positive. wonderful about that is that is that the two, the two millennial people here ended up sounding like cranky old boomers <laughs> inside. Yeah. This is all going to end badly. So I think, Alice, I think you I think you won everyone around in the end. <laughs> OK, that's all we have time for today. Thanks to Sinead O'Carroll, uh, Larry Donnelly, who's not with us any longer, Alice Leahy, Rona McRae, Stephanie Preisner. Owen Corrie and Barry O'Sullivan, thank you very much for coming in and uh, talking to us about technology. 
That's all we've time for. Michelle Brown and Katrina McFadden are our researchers. Emily Hurley was our broadcast coordinator. Mark McGrath was on sound. Owen McLaughlin produced. And the series producer is Rachel Graham. And can I wish you all a very happy new year. And I'll talk to you soon.